Radio Mano Papachango. Greetings, Chris, and other tangentially speaking listeners. My name is Josie. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm just sitting in my backyard listening to the wonderful creek that runs through our backyard and hanging out with my daughter in the sun. And it's just a couple of days before Mother's Day and just thinking about this awesome community that I get through you guys and through your podcast and your book, Chris. Uh, It's really opened my mind, challenged me on a lot of things that... I previously had her held very dear to my heart, and uh, as a result, I've become a better, become a better person, a better woman, a better, a better wife, a better mother, and uh, and I've grown up listening to your podcast. So thank you for that, and cheers to all you other badass mothers out there. Um, Sometimes it's not glamorous. I'm not in Tahiti or in Bora Bora. I'm just in my backyard. I've given up my job so I can stay home and raise this little baby the best way that I know how. And um, and to me, that's the most important adventure of all. So cheers, guys. Lots of love. Hey, Chris. It's Matt here. Checking in from Alabama. Driving down to Mississippi started on this mini road trip from the hustling and bustling state of Delaware listening to your podcasts on the way down Uh, I'm an Aussie doing my grad studies in marine science in Delaware I started listening to your podcast about six months ago and since then I've been smashing them all out your great conversations definitely help with the tedious lab work that I have to do Your podcasts often remind me of how people say you should always listen to the elderly. So to me, your podcast is a way to listen to all your sage wisdom without going to a retirement home. But in all seriousness, I can relate to a lot of your experience with travel. And I just wanted to let you know that your worldly outlook and perspective on things is of great value to me. So cheers again and keep up the awesome work. Hi Chris, I'm uh, messaging you from Barcelona, uh, currently doing a trip after a long year of making work. I'm an artist and curator. I've spent the last few hours walking around aimlessly in this beautiful city and uh, I felt it was appropriate to send you a message and of course your lovely cohort of listeners. Keep doing what you're doing and... I'll keep listening. Ciao. Hello, my lovely cohort of listeners. It's been a while. I feel like I don't really know when I uploaded the last one, but it feels like it's been a while. Maybe that's just because the shit is hitting the fan at an ever-increasing rate and uh, time is going faster and faster and faster as we circle this drain. Uh, Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable the shit that's going on right now. If you 
are not in the United States or you're not paying attention to the uh, frantic flailing about of our infant president as, uh, you know, he's threatened with obscurity, good for you. And I'm not going to ruin your blissful ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't – again, I keep making this point, I know. But ignorant is not bad. Ignorance is bliss, right? I mean, it really is. You look at children and it's like, wow, you have no idea the shit that's coming your way. Good for you. And the last thing I want to do is sit down with a kid and say, hey, let me tell you about mortality. Um, And I feel the same way about people who are like, yeah, I don't really pay attention to the news. Like, good for you. And um, unfortunately, I'm not like that. I do pay attention to the news. And it's weird. I've been – I think I pay too much attention to the news, Um, which is, I guess, the flip side of the feeling that ignorance is bliss. Like, I need some more fucking ignorance in my life because the chronic – never-ending stress of paying attention to the decline of Western civilization, um, you know, it gets kind of heavy after a while. And it's not just Western civilization. I think it's civilization itself. And, um, you know, what bums me out the most is that we're dragging down so many innocent bystanders with us, ranging from people who uh, whose lifestyle does not require massive extraction of resources and the dumping of plastics into the oceans. Um, you know, hunter-gatherers, those few hunter-gatherers that still exist or people who are, um, you know, tending small farms in African villages. What the fuck did they do? They don't deserve this. And other species and, um, you know, that's, I kind of feel like, in a way, we're getting what we deserve, but there's so many innocents, uh, animal, non-human animal, and human animal who, who don't deserve this. Um, but on the other side, who knows how long it'll take, and maybe we can uh, finish our dance before the Titanic goes under. We'll see. Anyway, um, lots going on. This episode is with Eleanor Yaniga who is um, a scholar of medieval history, specializing in sexuality particularly. And um, I really, man, I really enjoyed this conversation. I first came across her work and humor and attitude uh, on Twitter uh, where she um, sort of uh, responds to People who think they know what was going on in in medieval Europe in the so-called Dark Ages. Um, And much like in my studies of prehistory, you you keep coming across people who, because until recently there wasn't a lot of data, solid data, uh, on how people actually lived in prehistory, it's a dark space in which people can project their biases unhindered by knowledge. And uh, so, you you know, you get all these theories about man, the hunter, and how, you know, everyone 
was was ruled by dominant alpha males and all this stuff. And then finally, when the data starts being collected, you find out that, oh, wait a minute, actually, most of what they ate was gathered by the women. And the men sat around a lot telling stories and occasionally, maybe once a week or so, would go out and hunt. And most of the time, they didn't get anything. And so, you know, this whole man, the hunter, macho vision of prehistory, which was promulgated by Raymond Dart and others uh, and is still being you know touted by Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins and these these sort of you know old frail macho dudes um you know it's nonsense but it's still a dominant narrative and and so she runs into the same thing where narratives acquire uh a momentum uh, that's very difficult to change with fact. Once that narrative is established, God damn, it's hard to change it because people become accustomed to the story and the story is the most powerful thing um, in human consciousness. Along those lines, I wanted to to read you a quote uh, from a book called Ishmael, which people have asked me about, you know, many times. It's it's a book I've read. I don't cite it. I don't think in at least not in Civilized to Death. I may have cited it in Sex at Dawn. I'm not sure. Um, but it's it's a hard book to cite because it isn't a scholarly argument. It's a it's it's a strange book. It, it's it's basically conveying a lot of the information that I attempted to convey in Civilized to Death as far as what our prehistoric ancestors really were like, what their lives were like, um, and how different that truth is from what we've been told and why there's that gap between the truth and the story. Um, But the book is written in a way that is kind of annoying to me anyway uh it's it's you know and i guess it's the author's idea daniel quinn was to make it more palatable easier to read you know not just another entry in the ongoing argument um about prehistory so he framed it as a conversation between uh, a guy and a gorilla that he meets in the zoo and the gorilla like tells him all this stuff about the you know, the origins of humanity. And so they have this conversation. It's just hard for me to kind of wrap my head around that. And then it it becomes, you know, how do you cite this in a so-called scholarly book? You know, it's like, and then the gorilla and Ishmael said, blah, blah, blah. Um, But it's got a lot of really good information. And if talking gorillas don't annoy you, I highly recommend it. Anyway, here's here's a brief quote from the book that gets at this the power of story. Quinn says, there's nothing, or maybe the gorilla says, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with people. Given a story to enact that puts them in accord with the world, they will live in accord with the world. But given a story to enact that puts them at odds with the world, as ours does, they will live at odds with the world. Given a story to enact in which they are the lords of the world, 
they will act as the lords of the world. And, given a story to enact in which the world is a foe to be conquered, they will conquer it like a foe. And one day, inevitably, their foe will lie bleeding to death at their feet, as the world is now. Powerful and true. Um, and I think that's that's the key, that the story, the stories that we enact are like maps in that if your map is partial, if you only have a map of this side of the river, very few people are ever going to cross that river. If your map tells you that uh, you know, this area over here is, is there be dragons full of danger, then very few people will go there. And if that map is lying to you, then you might be missing out on the best place you could possibly go. And these stories that were told about human nature, oh, you people are, are just barely held in check, the Steven Pinker argument, that, that it's only civilization and the authority structures of civilization that keep us from destroying each other. No. That's a really powerful story because it congratulates civilization. It's the story civilization wants us to have, to enact, because then we submit to civilization and we accept its authority. What kind of narratives, what kind of stories do you think slaves were being told in the United States in the 1850s? You're lucky. You're so lucky to be working on this plantation. You're lucky I don't whip you more than I do. Because you're just an animal. You're not a man. You don't deserve rights of human beings. You're lucky I feed you. What would you do if I didn't feed you? You'd starve to death. Now get out there and go to work. What stories do you think we would tell to animals in zoos if we could, if they could understand the stories? Oh, you're lucky you're protected by this cage. Because out there, oh, nature is red in tooth and claw. And what's bizarre is how the stories create the realities that they tell, right? So if you tell people, if you tell children growing up that you are a, a killer, you're an animal. You're a warrior. And you need to get out there and kill those Arabs and kill those Vietnamese and kill those Japs and kill those Nazis. And you got to go out there and kill our enemy. Well, what you're going to get are fucking warriors. And if you tell people a different story, that cooperation is our deepest impulse, that sharing is what we are designed by hundreds of thousands and millions of years of social life, living together, taking care of each other. If you tell people that's what your nature is, then you're going to get a different story. They'll enact a different story. That's why it's so fucking hard to change the story. Because the story creates reality. And the opposing forces, the... the corporations, the institutions that want their reality 
they're going to tell us their story that benefits them. And it's so hard to cross that river when the map says there be dragons. This is the work that Eleanor uh, Yanega is, is doing. She's trying to change the story. She's trying to show um, that the story we've been told about, the so-called Dark Ages, is a bunch of nonsense. And she's doing it with scholarship, intelligence, humor, uh, very sassy. I love her. She's great. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with her. Now, before I get to that, I want to expand a little bit on this this notion of story, the power of stories, and um, the difficulty of changing them. Uh, David Graeber, who I was hoping to have on this podcast, uh, an author who, who wrote a book, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, I think it's called, um, and... Um, yeah, some other some other writing that uh, he's an anarchist. He's a scholar, really interesting dude. Anyway, he died suddenly, probably of COVID in Venice uh, a few months ago. Um, unfortunately, so uh, I won't be able to debate these issues with him. But he's one of the people I would most like to 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 talk about these things with. Um, anyway, I found a quote from him. It's from. Um, uh, I think it's an essay called The Utopia of Rules, in which he says, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. So I kind of agree with the first part of that, that as I said just a few moments ago, the reality of our lives is something that is created by the stories that we tell. And the stories that we tell are the stories that we hear. Um, and therefore, I see how he could conclude and others conclude that we could just as easily make them differently. But I don't think that's true. Because what you see when you look at the origin of civilizations around the world is that they follow the same trajectories and they share central similarities. So every time you have a society that transitions into a state of accumulated wealth, which is all agricultural societies, but also some non-agricultural societies, what are referred to as complex hunter-gatherers by anthropologists and, and other scholars, confusingly. These are societies that do have accumulated wealth but don't grow food. So, for example, um, Native American uh, groups in the Pacific Northwest that had massive salmon runs and they would harvest the salmon and smoke them. And then they had these piles, you know, these stores of smoked salmon to get through the winter and that could be used for trading and, and so on and so forth. Um, these societies become very similar to agricultural societies because what happens, once you have accumulated resources, then this triggers social changes. You start to get political hierarchies, right? Because someone needs to decide uh, who gets, if it's a hard winter, well, and we don't have enough smoked salmon for everybody, who gets some and who doesn't? Someone needs to decide that. 
who defends the store from hungry people or from other tribes that are raiding in. So you need some sort of uh, military discipline and organization. Uh, who organizes the harvesting of the salmon or the corn or the wheat or what have you? Um, so you get these political hierarchies. And then once you have political hierarchies, you have inequality, you have um, wealth uh, disparity because some people have more power, much more status, much more access to resources than others. You start to get um, warfare because now you've got hungry people who don't have resources and they know you do. So they're going to try to raid you and you need to defend against them. And maybe you now you're you're growing because the population grows when you start having accumulated wealth and so on. So it, it sort of sets off this cascade of social changes. And this is why, uh, you know, you see this all, all over, whether it's the Aztecs or the Romans or the Greeks or the Chinese or, you know, societies in, in uh, the Ganges Valley in India, whatever, wherever it is, once they start having accumulated wealth, then they start having things like political hierarchy, slavery, war, and all the rest of it. So it isn't just as easy to tell a different story in a particular social system. This is why I think the work of Marvin Harris is so interesting. Um, he's an anthropologist. He was the head of Columbia Anthropology Department for years. He wrote a book called, um, uh, what is it, like Pigs, Witches, and something, and... and uh, Cannibals and Kings, I think, was another of his books. Uh, and they're they're really interesting and they're written in a popular style. So you can um, – don't be intimidated. They're popular, as easy to read as, as my books. Um, and uh, he sort of makes the point that cultures grow out of particular environments and it's – almost inevitable that particular cultures are going to grow out of particular environments. So there are desert cultures, there are tropical cultures there. And he showed, for example, that uh, cannibalism, which we consider to be this kind of bizarre perversion of random cultures around the world, you can predict who are going to be cannibals based upon the availability of protein and particularly animals that can be domesticated that don't compete with humans for food. So it doesn't make sense to raise dogs for meat because dogs eat basically the same thing that humans do. Whereas you could raise pigs for meat and the pigs don't compete with humans for the original food source. So pigs will eat things that humans don't eat, so it makes sense to raise pigs for meat. It's, it's efficient. So he looked at islands in the Pacific and found that on the islands where they had pigs or something else like that that they could raise for meat, they were not cannibals. But on the islands where they didn't have this source of protein, they were cannibals. So... Like, okay, and it has nothing to do with violence, right? I mean, the Spanish, the the Romans, they killed lots of people. They just didn't eat them because they didn't need to because they had other sources of protein. So really interesting work. 
Anyway, it, what it does is it argues against this idea that we could tell another story just as easily. Um, and further from Graeber, to continue his quote, he said, I decided to call this collection, it's a collection of essays, Possibilities, because the word encompasses much of what originally inspired me to become an anthropologist. I was drawn to the discipline because it opens windows on other possible forms of human social existence, because it served as a conscious reminder that most of what we assume to be immutable has been, in other times and places, arranged quite differently, and therefore that human possibilities are in almost every way greater than we ordinarily imagine. Now, see, this is so interesting because he's right. I think he's, his premise is correct, clearly correct, that um, as an anthropologist, you learn that people live in many different ways. That's true. But they live in those different ways because different, let's call them economic uh, relationships with the world. In other words, how you get your food, how you get what you need from the natural world. That relationship to the natural world comes with a certain set of possibilities for how you are going to live. So if you get your sustenance from the natural world as a hunter-gatherer, what in Ishmael, Quinn refers to as levers. He, he distinguishes levers from takers. Levers are people who will come and take some apples off the tree and eat them and then keep walking and leave the rest of the apples on the tree. Takers come and cut down the fucking tree and take every apple off it. That's, that's what we are. We're takers, right? We mine dig these massive mines, dump all the fucking dirt and the and the, the runoff into the river, kill the fucking fish, doesn't matter because I got to get my gold and then I'll go on and leave this mess behind. That's what we do. Um, anyway, the, the relationship that you have with the natural world determines the parameters determines the the possibilities for how you're going to interact with that world. So I agree with his first part that, yes, there are many different ways of living on the planet, but I disagree with the second part, which is that human possibilities are greater than we imagine because we could do it any way we want, but we can't do it every way we, any way we want because we're constrained by the economic relationship we have with the world. So if you need to go to the grocery store to buy your food, then you need to have money. And if you need to have money, then you need to either have a job or have an inheritance or have some way, some flow of money. Whereas if you have a garden and chickens and build your own house from trees that you cut down and heat it with wood that you chop down in the back 40 or whatever, then you have a much different set of possible um, life forms than you do if you're dependent upon the market. I don't know. I feel like I've been talking a long time, but that was a point I really wanted to make. Um, we need to change the structures within which we live in order to change the way we live. So if you have a job that you hate, 
you need to change that situation before you're going to be able to make changes in the rest of your life that are going to be lasting. I guess that's the point. And so I come back to, to where I started with the shitstorm, the politics, the crazed times that we're living in, the, the virus, the, the collapse. And I am more than ever convinced that we need to build these lifeboats. We need to create spaces in which we are not dependent upon the macro structure because that's breaking down. And what we need is to create relationships with the world, with the natural world, that reduce our dependence on that. So the best way to do that is to return to the primordial wisdom of the past, which is take care of each other. So what I'm trying to do now with some friends here um, in Colorado is buy cheap land, have access to chickens, have a community of people who can take care of each other, someone who knows how to fix cars and chainsaws, someone who knows how to build a house, someone who knows how to do plumbing, someone who knows how to do electrical work, um, people who don't know that, who are willing to come and work hard and learn. And we build each other's houses. We do barn raising, essentially. We form a gang of people who take care of each other. You know, it's like, that story I told in Civilized to Death about the the people from Papua New Guinea who came to England, and um, I think I've told the story before on the podcast, uh, you know, basically hunter-gatherer people, Stone Age people who are in England, and they're having breakfast at this guy's house one morning, and he's like, okay, got to go to work. And one of the native people said, why do you leave every day? You leave when it's you know, the sun isn't even up and you come back when it's dark and you don't see your family. Where do you go? And the guy's like, well, I go to work. And he's like, why? And he's like, well, I need money. Got to pay the mortgage, you know, got to pay for this house, for example. And the the native says, well, how many days do you have to work to pay for this house? And the guy says, 30 years. And they look at each other. 30 years of your life for this shelter? We get together and we build a shelter for each other in three or four days. That's it. And it's fun. We're laughing. People, we're getting ripped off. We're getting ripped off because the story we've been told is that this is the only way. But it's not the only way. And if we tell each other and ourselves different stories... It opens up different situations, and we change our relationship to the world. You don't need the huge house. You ever see those heat maps of people where they they look at where they actually go in their giant McMansion, and it's like three or four rooms. It's the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom. Never go into the guest rooms and the dining room and the big living room. But the story you've told, been told is that you need that big house. And then you need the job to pay for the big house. And yeah, slavery. That's what that is. 
All right. I had a lot of other shit I wanted to talk to you about, but I guess I'll save it for last time because I've been yammering for half an hour. This is Eleanor Yanega. She's fucking awesome. All right. I'm going to play you out with a song called Summer of My Mind. The band is highly portable. Uh, I guess Ian is the guy, the singer. Um, uh, Ian Hare, I think his name is. Yeah. And uh, he uh, was not, he, he didn't know who I was, but he has a friend named Daniel. And Daniel was like, hey, man, Daniel Rodriguez, like, hey, I think you'd like this music. And I listened to it and I did like it. And then Ian and I corresponded a little bit and I wanted to get his um, his permission to use the song. And uh, and now I guess he listens to the podcast. And so welcome, Ian. Sorry it took me so long to play this. Uh, I thought I'd already played it, but I guess I haven't. I don't know. I just, obviously, organization is not my uh, my strong suit. Anyway, this is Summer of My Mind. The band is highly portable. Uh, they're on um, on uh, Spotify, and uh, you'll find them there. I'm sure also Bandcamp and whatever. You can Google them. Highly portable. Summer of My Mind. Thank you for listening, everybody. Sorry for yammering on so so long. I got so many things to get off my chest. And I got a small chest. There's just not enough chest room there. Hope things are going well for you out there in the world. Uh, appreciate all of you. Bye.
this time Yanaga. you got it right yeah <laughs> all right all right i i came across your work on on the internet i don't remember how or why it must have been some something you posted that i saw on twitter and uh i went and looked at your blog and i got really started following you and uh i'm really fascinated by what you do which if if i can describe it quickly basically seems to be debunking um, misconceptions about medieval European life with a focus on sexuality? Is that more or less what you're up to? Yeah, I would say that's really accurate. And I mean, I suppose that one of the things that I'm, I'm quite invested in is, you know, there is a way that we sort of tell stories about um, ourselves in, you know, the global north, I suppose. So we're also affected by specific European narratives about history. And we've got some really strange narratives about uh, medieval history in particular. Um, and we use and abuse medieval history in a particular way to kind of suit ourselves. Um, and especially in regards to when you're talking about things like sexuality. Um, so I uh, specialize in uh, apocalypticism and sexuality uh, because I say that the only two things that really matter in life are sex and death. So, you know, everything else is just window dressing. Um, but I, I feel like there is a lot, there's a really sustained kind of mythology that we have about the medieval period. And we just twist it around whenever we want to make up excuses for the way that we behave now. Or we use it as kind of like uh, a mythological counterpoint of when everything was bad to justify the things that we do now. And so my work really focuses on demystifying the medieval period, explaining it to people, and hopefully making the point that we've actually got a lot more room to move in terms of sexuality, because a lot of the way that we approach it is actually kind of just stuff that we make up. So if we're making it up, you know, we can unmake it at any point in time, you know, um... 
I always say that, you know, social constructs, I'm not saying that they're completely invented. I'm saying that they are real, but we decide to buy into them or not. So one of the tools that we use in order to, you know, justify social constructions is history. And so I'm really invested in kind of bringing that to life so that people can make more educated statements about what it is that um, we as humans do and why. Mm, that sounds so similar to the way I would describe what I do, just slip in prehistory as opposed mm-hmm. to medieval history. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And, and you know, the same kind of parallel um, convenient distortions, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, everyone was violent in prehistory, so therefore things are much more peaceful now or... You know, everyone was monogamous in prehistory. Therefore, this is just a continuation of human nature. It's like everyone's twisting it around largely because of, until recently, I think, uh, an absence of evidence uh, to really, no one knew what the hell they were talking about. So everyone was just pulling stuff out of their asses. And so you pull out whatever's most convenient, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And it seems the same thing. Now, I, I've you recently, or or maybe this is something you've been doing for a long time, but you're you're very critical of the phrase "dark ages." Yes, right. Um, Talk about that a little bit. So, um, dark ages in particular, it's that's a particular pet peeve of mine and many medieval historians because it has completely changed in terms of what it means over time. So uh, originally the term Dark Ages we used specifically to uh, call the early medieval period. Um, The medieval period, for those who don't spend their lives working on it, absolutely fine. It's not going to bother me. It's about from, you know, the fall of Western Rome, so about 475, uh, up until... Uh, question mark. It really depends on who you ask. You know, the Columbian exchange, possibly, uh, maybe when Luther, you know, Martin Luther kind of puts his 95 thesis, you know, late 15th, early 16th century, something like that. So we're talking about, give or take, about 1100 years. And when we said the Dark Ages, we were specifically saying, so from about like a, a bit after the fall of Rome, so maybe the 6th century up until mm, maybe like the 9th century, 10th century. And specifically what the words Dark Ages meant was that it was dark as in occluded. Like, Mm. we don't have a lot of surviving sources from that time. Um, Just because, you know, well, things, in in order for something to last a hundred, you know, for a thousand years, it has to be really important. You know, it's got to be really special and you have to have like a really calm and like continued process of uh, passing things down through time. A thousand years is a really long time for things to be kept around. I mean, I, I always use the analogy of like every time I move house or something like that, like I throw out old bank bills or something like that. That doesn't mean they never existed. It just means that they weren't important enough for me to be carting it around. So we have this this time period where we just don't know a whole lot. Um what has happened in subsequent years is people decided to reinterpret dark so that they didn't it doesn't mean like occluded it means pejorative as in right. bad and violent right. and then they also right. think dirty. that it means yeah oh dirty that's the big one that people just all the time there's this this focus on the idea that medieval people are really filthy which is just bananas yeah um <laughs> but... <laughs> i can see that one drives you crazy oh it's yeah. just oh um <laughs> and uh and so, and so we were like, oh, well, dark means bad. And also we mean the entire medieval pe- period. So, you know, we're talking about the 14th century and, you know, you'll see people go, well, I don't know. The Black Death sounds kind of dark to me. And it's like, that's not what dark meant. And also that's, you know, like a thousand years after what I'm talking about. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, sort of thing. So it's a, it's a bugbear. 
And that is kind of um, helped on by a couple of things. I mean, part of this is Voltaire's fault um, because uh, Voltaire really didn't like the church. Um, and so in his opinion, any point in time where the church had a bit of sway was necessarily a bad and backwards time. Um, and that's really picked up in Enlightenment thought. Um, and it's also really prevalent in Protestant societies, right? So, um, you know, I'm, as you can tell from my accent, originally from the States, and I live in the UK now, so massively uh, Protestant uh, places. And even if we see ourselves as, you know, um, not Christian, which I emphatically do, <laughs> not think of myself as a Christian, you know, our culture is such that it does have this tendency to like always say, oh, well, the church is this um, dark and evil, like octopus that's getting into every part of society. And, you know, the idea that the church is like constantly watching you and there's like church cops or something out to get you. And it's like, mate, up until like the 11th century, the church was not even important enough to like be able to like the Pope was famously right before Charlemagne came in, like beaten almost to death in the streets of Rome. Like these were not important people for a really long time. And we go, Oh, well the bad church giving us all these bad stories and Oh, oh. and you know, so there is this tendency to do that. Um, and also there is something I think about uh, colonialism, which makes us really look down on the medieval period because we have a tendency to reify uh, the Roman Empire or even like the Hellenic empires and say, oh, well, this is when stuff is really good. Like, oh, yeah, um, stuff is really great under Rome. Um, and then it all falls apart uh, in the medieval period when you don't have a violent slave empire that's constantly taking over everyone and violently subjugating them. Like, oh, yeah, Rome was wonderful and the medieval period is bad. And it's like, well, bad to who? I mean, if you were one of the 40% of the population on the Italian peninsula under Rome who was a slave, you might not feel the same way about the Roman Empire. But I do also think that we have this tendency when we think about the past to think that like we were kings, you know, like the way history mm -hmm. is kind of taught is like, oh, yeah, it's just a bunch of names of kings. And, you know, you'd be a king. So you'd be an emperor. You'd be a senator. So you would love Rome and it would be, you know, nothing but orgies. vomitoriums and orgies, you know, yeah, yeah. and you know, it's, it is what it is, you know, like in, within that, it's really interesting. I get quite bothered uh, by people, um, for example, making fun of medieval medicine. And they'll say mm. that the Romans had good medicine and that medieval people didn't. And I'm like, I have no idea where you get this from because medieval people are using Roman medicine, but with the benefit of extra time. And, you know, they've figured out how to do stuff like eye surgery or, you know, different things like that. They actually have a better idea of anatomy than Roman people did because Roman pagans banned, um, and, like, uh, anatomy lessons and uh, taking apart corpses and that sort of a thing. And that, it's true in medieval Europe that that's, like, it goes off and on. You're not supposed to be dissecting corpses, but sometimes you are supposed to, and then everyone can go learn about anatomy. Romans didn't. Uh, but that's just, like, one of these myths. Everyone just kind of assumes that Romans must have been doing it, and it's like, no, not at all. And so there's a... Um, you know, recently on Twitter, there was like a thing where people were, I was talking about how um, someone on Twitter was saying, oh, if what would you have died of in the medieval period? And I was like, you know, I get that this is just a game, but it's really not about the medieval period. It's about any point in time uh, before mm -hmm. antibiotics, you know, basically, like it would have killed you. I mean, we're talking about anything up until the 20th century, but we single out the medieval period. And then someone was like, oh, yeah, but Rome was definitely cleaner than the medieval period. And I'm like, no, it isn't. And people mm. tell themselves these stories about how. And then this person went on to say that uh, Romans essentially lived in tiny coliseums. So, <laughs> you, like, I, I, like, I can't. <laughs> you know? yeah. But, yeah. you know, there is this um, people think that Rome was this bright, clean, white place 
um, and that like everyone essentially was walking around getting inoculated or something. I don't know. And then the medieval period is nothing but fleas and mud. And right. it's based on the fact that we just don't know. It's a, it, the medieval period is a really complicated period. It's very difficult to teach. So a lot of us um, don't get to learn about it at all until like university. Um, if we do take history at university. And so everyone just goes, oh, you know, fine. Like just kind of accepts certain things and moves on. And I just think that it kind of allows us to tell these really damaging stories about our past and culture. And we have to just completely rip that out so that we can really see the way that our society was built and the things that we use to justify our own actions. Is, is it even legitimate to talk about the medieval period as a period? I mean, cause one of the points you just made, I mean, it seems like there's several points you made. One is there's, there's a, a dearth of strong evidence. So there's, there's a, you know, uh, a lot of uh, blank screen to project our biases and our historical um, assumptions onto. Second thing is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not as much um, literacy. There's not as much written information. We've got, you know, the Roman philosophers and the, the plays and the you know, fair bit of uh, literature uh, that we can look at for Roman society. There's a bias toward empire uh, and civilization, um, you know, seen as a, a large scale systematic, you know, you and I both probably see it as oppressive and, uh, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. slave based <laughs> and, you know, extracting resources and uh, house of cards. Um, but that, but then the, another thing is we're talking about something that only exists as an entity because we've chosen to name it as an entity, mm. right? Like who's to say, you know, from the fall of Rome in 475 AD to, you know, roughly a thousand is, you know, that's a distinct and also different countries, right? Like Europe. I mean, what the hell was Europe in a in thousand AD? Mm, yeah. So a lot going on there. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, like periodization, the very idea of it is just uh, the historians getting like way too pleased with themselves, right? It's, you know, obviously we come up with these shorthands and we say, okay, well, here's a term and this is what it means. And it's a really difficult concept as well, because when we say, oh, well, history is divided up in these ways, ancient, which is most of it, right? <laughs> and then you've got like a thousand years of medieval and then modern, just bang, bang. Um one of the things about that is, like, it's very inherently Eurocentric, right? And I'm a Europeanist, right. so, like, yeah. you know, it suits me just fine because I work on continental Europe, whatever. Uh, but it doesn't make sense in the same way if you, say, apply it to China. And mm. indeed, a lot of the time when we do talk about medieval China, we're talking about a period, uh, it's usually like the Songqing Ming uh, uh, progression, I think I might have got that right, some... Sinophiles are going to tell me I'm wrong, and they're probably right. Um, but that is really early on in the medieval period from a European standpoint. And then the standards of technology and standards of living and um, the bureaucracy and everything in China it ramps up so quickly that we're just like, bang, they're, they're early modern almost right away. While, whereas Europe is kind of like floundering around for another 700 years or so. Um, so it is... And it is like, you know, as I say, well, we say, oh, the beginning of the medieval period when Rome falls. So it's this incredibly like European endeavor. This idea is like, oh, yeah, well, that's when things begin. You know, no one cares in Japan that Rome fell. You know, that means absolutely nothing. You know, um, right. if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, nothing at all. It doesn't mean anything to the Mesoamericans, you know. So it's it is us kind of projecting this. But 
And indeed, for a while, we didn't even necessarily use the phrase medieval history if we weren't talking about European history. But we're starting to get away from that and say, no, let's talk about like the global Middle Ages. But um, I do. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if in a hundred years or so we didn't even use the term medieval anymore, and we found something a little more, I don't know, uh, inclusive, I suppose. Uh, but it's what we're working with now, if that makes sense. What does the word medieval mean? Do you know the etymology mm. of that word? Yeah, so it means uh, it literally means middle age. So medi, middle, eval, right. age. Uh, so you know you have the ancient period. So ancient uh, period, mid- middle period, modern right. period. Um, and, you know, we're already having to struggle with that because, you know, yeah, the, so the 17th century is modern. We don't have a whole lot in common with those guys. You know, so, you know, right. we're already struggling like, you know, um, and it is one of those things where I, I would say that they are quite uh, different, you know, in the 17th century to medieval people, certainly. But mm, they're not quite us, are they? So when are we going to start to kind of think about, like, even what the term modern means, you know? Right, right. And another uh, sort of... Um variable that that you threw in there when you were talking about uh, China and and different societies, you said quality of life uh, improved Mm. or standard of living. Um, But it's interesting because what we're looking at there are historical records. Mm. We're looking at the upper classes, right? Mm. Whereas quality of life for 90% of the people didn't really change at all. They're still Mm. scratching the earth trying to, you know, survive. Oh, absolutely. Um, so and, and this is something I, that I, I think is both just inherently fascinating and also very important for us to be thinking about at our current historical moment, um, which is that when empires collapse, the quality of life for most people doesn't necessarily collapse with the empire. Mm-hmm. It's just the upper classes who suffer uh, a huge loss in standard of living is that true in because medieval period it seems to be you're basically you have these empires you have greece you have rome then you have this period of sort of like low level nothing really happening on a global or even Mm -hmm. regional scale um and then and then you've got the rise of modernity and and you know the whole shit storm that we're in now Mm -hmm. So what was the quality of life like for people, like living under the Romans versus 200 years later? So, I mean, it's one of those things that's just interesting because for average people, right? So for this entire period of time, you know, up until, gosh, you know, five seconds ago, everyone was a peasant, you know, and and by that I mean, you know, farmers, right? So um, in medieval Europe, 80% of the population are peasants. That's it. You know, everyone was just farming. They were making a living. And, um... They were fairly, you know, it's one of those things where it's really difficult for us to say because, you know, I very much enjoy electricity and and that sort of a thing. But having said that, they worked less than we do. Um, Mm. So they had a lot more days off. Like basically anytime there was a Saints Feast Day, which is almost every day, you know, there is a lot of feast days out, you know, you don't you don't work. Um, you, You of course, you have to keep your animals alive and that sort of a thing. But it's not kind of like the nine to five idea of the grind. Um, they have sort of like really close knit communities, which are really quite nice in a lot of ways and quite supportive. Um, so one of these things about, uh, it's very difficult to talk about like average life expectancy because average life expectancy in Europe makes it look like everyone dies at 40, but that's right. just because there's massive child mortality. Um, so it basically if you make it out of childhood, 
Um, and then if you're a woman, if you survive childbirth, that's the other big one. Um, odds are you're going to live into your 70s in the medieval period. And it's actually quite common, like just common as muck that people live into their 70s. It's not. Um, Same as prehistory. Exactly. But we have this tendency to say, oh, yeah, well, this is this is oh, everyone. You would have been an old man at 35 in the medieval period. Right. It's like, absolutely not. That's not how it works. Um, yeah. But, uh, and you know, indeed, if you look at averages in the same way in the Victorian period, everyone dies in childbirth and there, you know, not much change uh, for quite some time. Um, so we have a fairly uh, good quality of life and health, um, you know, like outside of the plague. But, you know, until we invented antibiotics, there was nothing that could have been done about that, really. Um, you do have kind of these smaller scale and interconnected um, towns, and then they kind of feed into cities. And see, we periodize the, just to make it a little more uh, complicated, we then periodize the medieval period as well. So you've got the the early medieval period or the Dark Ages where we just don't know much and it seems like things really kind of went down to a town level, less so cities. Then you've got um, what we call the high medieval period, which is sort of like mm, the 11th century to, I don't know, maybe the 14th century, give or take. When cities are really back, we invent universities. Um, there's a lot more international trade. Uh, we start doing jerk stuff like going on crusade, um, you know, and we kind of like reconnect a lot with the um, Mediterranean networks and that sort of thing. And then um, and our records really pick up from there. And then the late medieval period, which is sort of like your 14th, 15th century in there where, um, you know, we start to have much better uh, contacts with Asia. Um, and we have actually quite a booming population until the Black Death uh, comes along and makes things uh, very complicated. But, you know, the average person lives, you know, a pretty fine life on a farm. Uh, but that's not what we tend to think about when we think about history. We think about, you know, rich guys, um, I don't know, trading wool. Uh, specifically and you know that's one of my personal bugbears because I'm really interested in commoners like that's who I think the most important people are because that's everybody um, and it can be really difficult to find those voices because you know yeah they're probably not literate um, you know to be literate in the medieval period means that you read and write Latin very specifically um, and it takes quite some time before people start writing down vernacular works and even then when they start doing that it's it's rich people so you know a lot of the stuff that we have um, from the high medieval period that's vernacular is stuff like courtly love literature which was all written in French because um, all the courts speak French as well um, and you know so they're definitely like writing their little sex stories to each other and having a nice time but you know that in that eventually trickles down to the average person who is more likely to read and write um, a vernacular language but again those aren't the things that like people keep people don't like tuck the body stories away all the time and you know the average medieval person has a, a real kind of scatological and sexual sense of humor like when we do have things like you know, common plays or um, common rhymes and stuff. It's like, they just think a fart joke is like, that is it for them. Like they think that's the funniest thing ever. They, they like to make sex jokes. They like all of these things. And, you know, in a lot of ways they are like us. They're just living in a real different society in terms of what it is that they're doing for work and how they communicate with each other or travel around. But I mean, your average person does actually do some traveling around too. Like most people go on pilgrimage at some point in their life. It might not be to Rome or Jerusalem, but you know, they'll go to Canterbury if they're English. They'll go, a lot of people go to San Diego de Compostela in Spain. Um, that's, you know, a big thing. You know, people travel, people do move around. They do do interesting things. It's just that life is not, you know, kind of predicated on extraction in the same way that it is now. So it doesn't allow for certain 
extraordinarily wealthy people to extract in exactly the same way. And, you know, like when we show up and, you know, Europeans show up in China repeatedly being like, hey, does anyone want to trade with us? And the Chinese people are like, trade you what, sir? Like you eat with your hands. And they're like, I don't know. And then they kind of like skip back, you know, and then they tell tales about how great Kublai Khan's court is, right? Like Marco Polo. But, um, you know, we just didn't have a whole lot to offer people until we started stealing other people in the colonial era. And it's like, and then once we started like stealing from other people, that's when, you know, Europeans got fancy. But, you know, until then we were just kind of, and that's not to discount what was going on in medieval Europe, which is complex and interesting and, um, you know, really valuable. But there is also, I think that's also part of the not paying attention to the medieval period because it's like, oh, well, if Europe wasn't bossing the entire world around, it was truly a terrible time. And it's like, well, why? why, Like, why do we always have to be, you know, the most important people? And why do we always have to be the ones who are setting the tone? You know, it could be fine for us to have um, our own culture. Yeah. You mentioned courtly love and, and tales of courtly love. It reminds me of... Uh, this thing I read a long time ago, Joseph Campbell arguing that the notion of romantic love comes out of that courtly love tradition in mm. a medieval period where, uh, you know, a knight would pledge his love to the, the wife of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, 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 who was he, the king or the, I don't know, the regional. Yeah, the, the noble, whoever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so there was no sex involved. It was just this whole like, oh, I pledge my heart to you. Is that true? That's always well, kind of far-fetched to me. I don't know. Yeah, so the thing of it is, um, I would say that a lot, that courtly love really dominates a lot of our ideas of romance, certainly. Um, but the idea that there wasn't sex involved is hilarious to me because there's absolutely sex involved. Um, but it, so courtly love, the rundown is, it is like that. Uh, it's specifically this genre about usually unmarried men falling in love with married women. Um, and, you know, this kind of comes out of like noble courtship you know, courts, right? Um, So you get married to some guy because for medieval period, marriage has absolutely nothing to do with love. You know, it's a business contract and a religious contract. Um, If you're a commoner, sure, you might uh, marry someone that you love and that's great. But, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's not the way that people see it. You know, it's just something that you do to kind of keep your family going and to keep goods in the family. So uh, you've got some people who got married for whatever reason. There's a bunch of rich people fopping around in a house not doing much. And they're all kind of making puppy eyes at each other. And then they invent this genre of literature where they write each other poems or they write these uh, big romantic sagas. And it's always about a woman who's married to someone trying to get off with one of the knights in the house. And there's a real tension there because, you know, sometimes it's used in this like, way of making sure that you definitely don't shag the knights that you want to shag, right? Um, so, for example... Uh, the romance between Guinevere and Lancelot uh, in the Camelot stories, you know, like Camelot falls because Guinevere has sex with Lancelot. And it's like, oh, you weren't supposed to go that far. It was fine that you were in love, but you weren't supposed to have sex. And now that like this might call into question the purity of the bloodline, oh, Camelot falls. Never mind the fact that like, you know, Arthur's around shagging other people and that's completely fine. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But we do think that there is a lot of sex happening between um, men and women within court settings. But we think that it tends to be like not penis and vagina sex. Um, so, you know, you would have a lot more. So the, the, the bestseller of the courtly love genre in the medieval period is called uh, the, romance, the, the Romance of the Rose or the Romande de la Rose. 
Um, and this is just everyone's favorite thing up until like even into the early modern period. Everybody loves it. And it's kind of like a big metaphor as well about like women's genitalia, like about like vaginas. And so a lot of it is kind of like referring to just like rubbing clits, you know, basically. And it's like, oh, well, that's sort of the thing. So you do see a lot more like manual sex, a lot more oral sex within these contexts because it takes away um, the risk of pregnancy. But also within, uh, for medieval people, those kinds of sex are considered like absolutely like very sexy, you know, like non-penis and vagina sex is like, because it's technically forbidden by the church, when, right? When you say rubbing clits, you're talking about women rubbing their clits together? or Yeah, that, that or men doing it for women. Um, there is a lot of uh, literature about like women kind of, um, a lot of medical texts and stuff will make reference to the fact that young women get together and like, uh, and will rub each other's clits. That's a thing that they talk about a lot. Um, but also within just like a romantic setting, like that's something that you do. So, you know, you grant some of the co- consolations of your love is the thing that they say and this will mean poems and it will mean you know this this idea of like romantic love but it uh, does seem to also perhaps have to do with like manual and oral sex as well if not full-blown penis and vagina sex right i try not to say full-blown i try to kind of privilege all kinds of sex but i've just done it so there it is um well okay so let's continue down this line then um how is gender understood mm. in in medieval Europe? Is there is there a, you know this male female mm. sort of polarization, or is there much more sort of fluidity? Do you understand? Yeah, so there's a lot. Basically, um, medieval understandings of gender are kind of like take Aristotelian ideas of gender and slap Christianity on top. So the generalized idea is that men are the default human. And then women are not men. Um, So, you know, it's... um, And basically men are all of the good things. You know, they're rational and they're temperate and they can do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, Women are all of the things in opposition to that. Um, This is also based on uh, humoral theory and Galenic Galenic thought. So um, men are hot and dry. Women are cold and wet. um, And these two things are are sort of in opposition. Um, And... For medieval Europe, this has also got all the Christianity layers, so you have all the ideas of original sin on top of that. So Mm -hmm. um, God made Adam first, so men are more complete and correct, and women are kind of an afterthought that are created out of men, so out of uh, Adam's extra rib, and they are something that is sort of created for men, um, and they're a kind of foil of men. Um, and you, you get all your kind of standard Madonna whore things with this. So it's like, you know, the, one of the ultimate human beings that had ever lived was, of course, the Virgin Mary, who also happened very luckily to have been born without original sin. So, you know, she's always used as like, oh, well, women could be the holiest and best thing. But, oh, they're usually not. They're usually terrible in, in all these other ways because of, you know, their humoral makeup. Um, they're, they're natural. They, they'll always say like natural proclivity towards sinfulness and this sort of thing because... For medieval people, the idea of naturalness is divine, because since God created nature, then like, uh, then anything that is like natural is kind of like in line with that. And the idea is that like women are naturally sinful because of everything that happened in the Garden of Eden, um, whereas men are naturally uh, quite um, upright 
and able to stave things off. And very interestingly, um, and the thing that I always like to talk about within this, is that what this means for medieval people is um, one of the ingrained things that they talk about and bang on about is that um, women are much more sexual than men are. So right. men are really rational and they're able to say, no, sex is sinful and you shouldn't be participating in it. You shouldn't want it. Whereas women are conceived of as being like absolutely rapacious and like they want to have all the sex in the entire world. They're interested in having multiple partners. They want to have all kinds of sex that can't um, result in procreation, which makes it sodomy. Um, so women are interested in the wrong kind of sex with too many people and they just will not stop being horny. There's like a lot of just tension about how horny women are and how you have to like really keep them under control and how men are constantly being like, no, ladies, I don't want to have sex. I'm godly, you know, and then there is like a really strong um, kind of uh, focus on that. Um, and I always think it's really important to talk about that because now obviously like received wisdom is that it's exactly the opposite and, you know, women simply deign to put up with sex so that they can get relationships whereas men are irrepressibly horny apparently and it's like well the the point is that we just kind of like make things up whenever we want to tell a story about sex and it's like i don't know maybe just ask an individual like it could be but because yeah. for a long time there we were convinced that women were the horny ones and that's like gone off the boil completely so yeah mm. yeah what about uh now did people did commoners in medieval times understand like you're talking about sodomy as a way to avoid pregnancy. So they understood that penis vagina sex results in pregnancy. Yeah. They're really clear on that. They're not clear on exactly how it happens. So they are kind of are again, using like Aristotelian ideas of conception. There is some back and forth. There's two concepts on it. Um, there is the one semen theory and the two semen theory. So one is that um, women are just kind of like a receptacle that men put semen in and then the semen turns into a baby. The other right. one is that men ejaculate on orgasm. Women also ejaculate on orgasm. And when that semen mixes together, then that's what makes a baby. Right. Um, so if a woman doesn't come, she can't get pregnant. Exactly. So if she's raped and she gets pregnant, that she, means she enjoyed it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's like, and that is the thing that I always try to bring up because people be like, oh, that's really good that people are interested in a woman's pleasure during sex. And I'm like, please don't go that far. <laughs> like, let's yeah. not. Yeah, let's not, not a benevolent interest. No, yeah. no. Yeah. So, yeah, they're very, very clear on uh, the fact that that's what results in pregnancy. And so, you know, as a result, people are quite interested in the kinds of sex that won't result in pregnancy. You know, if pregnancy would probably kill you a lot of the time right. you might be a lot more interested in all the kinds that that don't lead to that and then there's also i think this layer where people are like "Ooh, the church doesn't want us to do it so it's sexy you know like it's, it's right. very sexy to have oral sex if everyone is telling you you absolutely can't have oral sex and right. i think that's also quite funny because it's it's the difference between like you know I went to Catholic school for 16 years and it was like, oh yeah, everything other than penis and vagina was like completely on the table. It's like, oh, that doesn't even count as sex. That's not quote unquote real sex. And for medieval people, it's sort of like the opposite of that. It's like, no, that's all the good stuff. That's the ones you want because the church wants you to have penis and vagina sex. And now we've just kind of flipped that and we're like, oh, that's not very good. It's not real. It's not real. And mm. medieval people were like, oh, it's real and sinful. And I like it, mm. you know, so there is a so, lot. Of so was there, would you say there, there was kink mm, oh certainly um, like bdsm and that yeah kind of stuff? um so th this is one of my favorite things to look at in the medieval period is, is the kink so we have a lot of things that we can read either way um so there there is for example um quite celebrated story of abelard and eloise i don't know um you, you may have heard of them or not but um abelard peter abelard was um a very celebrated 12th century philosopher um eloise of montreal was his eventual wife 
And um, Abelard decides that he wants to romance Eloise and gets her uncle, who's her, who is in charge of her, to hire him as her tutor. And it's it's very dodgy. And then so they're basically undertakes a relationship with her as her tutor, and they're trying to keep it under wraps because since he is um, teaches at the university, that means that he's a member of the clergy because anyone who works at university has to take orders. They don't want him to like have to stop being a member of the university so they're like oh keep our relationship on the down low and they're having all of the sex in her uncle's house and in order to disguise it um he will occasionally sort of like very um publicly beat her in front of other members of the house and they write these letters to each other back and forth and he and he'll talk about how um but those those um blows were sweeter than any kiss and there there's like a lot of like romanticizing him hitting her um we also see just a lot of fantasy and that sort of a thing from people in you know people sort of uh i I promise this it's very uh, difficult to explain but there's a lot of kind of fantasizing about um christ coming down off the cross and kind of like making out with or having sex with people while he's all bloody and like people putting their fingers in his wounds and things so that's a big thing um we do know for a fact, like you see, if you go, if you see a lot of like medieval religious art, a lot of the time it focuses on martyrs and stuff. And there does seem to be a uh, preference for martyrs who were kind of like naked and about to be hurt uh, in a lot of ways. So there's um, St. Agatha of Sicily. Um, one of her miracles is that uh, she was a Christian when the Romans still ruled Sicily. Um, and she was supposed to get married to a pagan. She didn't want to marry the pagan because she's a Christian, blah, blah, blah. So um, he arrests her and tortures her, and they cut one of her breasts off, and then St. Peter, I think, shows up magically and grows her breast back. But there are absolutely tons of murals of St. Agatha everywhere, and she's kind of, like, bound up to a Roman pillar with her arms behind her back, and there'll be these Roman guards, like, coming up just very close to her breasts with, like, pinchers. Um, There's St. Sebastian, who is like a queer favorite um, who was stripped to the waist, tied to a tree and had arrows shot at him. So he would, and he's like a big queer person because it was like a half naked man and who's bleeding and tied up. And these are absolutely everywhere. And we know for a fact that people think they're sexy because when the Protestants kind of take over, they're like, you've got to get all these statues out of here. Like it's too, you know, frivolous or whatever. And people would write about it. They'd be like, oh yeah, I would be in church and I would be really turned on by all the statues. I wasn't thinking about God. I would just be thinking about how sexy this saint looked. And and so, you know, people are really responding to this in a sexual way. Mm. And so it's interesting because, you know, the great majority of art that survives to us is religious in nature. But, you know, you look at it and there is really no other way to to read it. And, you know, we have another one I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is a there's this big fetishization of Christ's side wound as well. And we know, and when it's, it's kind of printed out, it looks like a vulva, right? That's what it looks like when it's, it's Mm. in um, various uh, texts. Um, And a really common thing is that people would have these like books of hours, which are sort of prayer books that they carry around rich people in particular. And they would have an image of Christ's side wound, which is just looking like a vulva. And we can tell that people have been like rubbing and kissing it because it's like come off. Um, as like the paint and parchment has come off and we know that there's saliva on it and that sort of a thing. So Mm. we know 100% that there are people who are kind of like relating to this ghastly wound that kills Christ as like a genital that you kiss, you know, and and these sort of things. So they have a very complicated relationship with kink, but in particular BDSM is in there. 
Um, and it's something that they, they talk about a lot, like pretty was there, explicitly. Was there a lot of like public execution and, and violence in daily life? So this is an interesting one because, you know, in terms of day-to-day violence, you know, medieval Europe isn't any more violent than medieval Europe is now. It is more violent in terms of uh, state violence, though. Uh, I mean, obviously there's no state, but <laughs> okay, so royal violence, I suppose. Because um, there's no such thing as police. Um, and basically policing is done within a community. So people very rarely get caught for crimes. Um, and crimes, the way that they are seen in the medieval period too, it's mostly more about property. Like property is the big reason that law sort of uh, brought in is to protect property interests, and that's basically it. So when someone is found who committed a crime, they usually go straight towards execution and big... Uh, big public things like that um, because they're really trying to make uh, a big point about the fact that like, oh, this is what happens if you get caught for committing a crime because a lot of the time you don't get caught. Um, And anything kind of below that a lot of the time is seen in kind of civil ways. So even for quite some time here in um, England, if you murdered someone, you wouldn't necessarily like get killed or thrown in jail. They'd be like, all right, you have to go on pilgrimage and you have to pay the person's family this much money and you have to, um, you know, donate something to the church and you have to like make it up to their family and you have to commit to being a better person and that's sort of the punishment. But... Say you go into the king's forest and kill a deer, they very well might hang you um, mm. because you've committed an offense against the king and they're trying to make a big point about how um, the king shouldn't be done. But the things that people get killed for are a lot of times like uh, forging coins. That's a big one. Any kind of offense against the king generally, that'll get you killed. It's not stuff like um, you know murder and rape and things like that. That right. That is much more considered like a community problem a lot of the right. time. So... It's it's not as though, like, the streets are running with blood or something, but, you know, the actual people who are running the legal system a lot of the time are much more quick to execute um, than we would be. But on the other hand, you don't... I mean, like, jail is something that exists kind of for debt. Um, mm. And also, it's just things are kind of, like, running in a community way. So it's, it's actually quite safe within towns and things. What can be sort of dangerous is uh, moving between towns, so, like, where there are there's a lot of bandits on the road. So it could be... It's very common to get robbed that kind of a thing but um you know is it more violent than current america i wouldn't say so you know it's just it just kind of is what it is you know yeah yeah i feel like we we skimmed over the question of gender a little bit oh yeah what were there is there a conception of of what we would today call transgender people or queer people or homosexual behavior I mean, I know the term homosexual as a noun is quite recent, but Mm. same-sex behavior. You mentioned, you know, girls rubbing their clits, which, by the way, bonobos, that's the main bonobo behavior. Yeah. I mean, so the thing is, um, there isn't really an idea of being a homosexual, uh, homosexual, (laughs) homosexual uh, in the in the medieval period, because Mm. basically um, it's about actions. They don't have the same kind of like identity thing. About saying, like, oh, if you behave in this way. So what you would be is you're either a sodomite or you're not. And anyone that we would call gay is certainly a sodomite because sodomy, uh, to be clear, is any kind of sex that can't result in procreation. So, you know, that's... Right. So if you have anal sex with a woman, that's sodomy. That's sodomy. And so you would still be a... So say you have anal sex with your wife, you're a sodomite. Like, and that's... And you are, in many ways, on the same level as, you know, gay people. 
Um, it kind of changes over time, though. In the earlier medieval period, people are a little more, you know, fine with it. You know, like, it's never good. No one's like, oh, yes, please go have sex with someone of the same sex. That'd be great. Um, but it kind of gets worse over time. And towards the end of the period and into the early modern period, you start seeing things, as particularly in Italy, like they will have entire sodomy police where they, like, invent a police force just to kind of track down sodomites, who are usually men. Um, and oftentimes when you do see the term sodomite, it will be that they're talking about a man having sex with men. So like Thomas Aquinas in particular has a real bugbear about, um, men who have sex with men because he says it's illogical. Like the only logical reason to have sex is to have children. And, you know, so there, this serves no logical purpose at all whatsoever. So you shouldn't be doing it. Um, so a lot of the time when he's using the word sodomite, he specifically, he specifically means gay men. Um, we do know that the term is used for what we would call lesbians as well, but just less frequently because there is that kind of same thing about like, oh, they can't penetrate each other. Does this really count? You know, if, if everything right. is external, uh, like nothing's being penetrated, that's kind of more of a gray area, although it's definitely sinful. Um, and it's something that we see uh, crop up very often. We have a lot of records from like monasteries and nunneries where people will have relationships with each other um, and and it's fairly you know they're not supposed to be doing it and there'll be every 50 years or so there's a big campaign to like get all the sodomites out of monasteries and like someone will uh, go on a crusade to try to cleanse everybody and, and this sort of a thing um never works it never works it always comes back um so we definitely know that there are what we would call gay people around but it's just for medieval people it, it's more of a, something that you're choosing to do and not necessarily who you are um, and so, so you don't have men dressing as women, for example, and taking husbands and things like that. We do, though. This is the thing. So we yeah. have also people that we would call trans now who show up. Right. A really common thing is people who were thought to be monks, it'll turn out on their death, uh, they'll be like, oh, so right. that, that's a vagina. Okay. And um, Wasn't there a pope? Uh, that oh, was so actually a woman so then they a, made them sit on a toilet or something this to is, look this at their is the, balls this is the Pope Joan uh, right, um, right they think yeah which is a legend but yeah there's like this whole Pope Joan thing but and then she's kind of found out because she eventually gets pregnant and like gives birth on mm. it but um, we do know that there are a lot of monks and then we will even like dig people up and we'll be like oh well that seems like you know this is this person was probably a woman and we have tons of that so lots of uh, female to male um, uh, trans people um, but it's hidden. It's yeah. not something that's accepted socially. It's interesting because especially if it's um, if it's trans men, they kind of like that because it's like, well, being a man is always better, right? Like it's better to be a man than be a woman. And there are several saints, for example, who, you know, in order to get out of the marriage, the pagan marriage that they didn't want to have, like God will transform them into a man or God will let them grow a big beard and they get to join a monastery. And it's like, oh, wonderful celebration. Isn't that great? So it, it's seen as, again, logical. Like it's logical that you would want to be a man. It's logical that you would want to be a monk. So everyone is like, oh, we love that. Great. Fantastic. Like when they, whenever a woman gets found out it was, she, she was a monk that's considered like really great and holy and she's still called brother he's still called brother he's buried with all of his brothers that sort of a thing we do have records of trans women so the quite famous case here in london is there's a woman who's called eleanor reichner um and eleanor is a really interesting case because she kind of gets um she gets thrown in jail because she's having sex she's a sex worker and she's having sex um outside of the proper sex worker area which is southwark across the river but she's having sex um, like up against the wall of the tower or something like that she's uh, just going for it and they're all what's all this then and they throw her in jail and then they find out that she has a penis and then they kind of bring her into court and they're like 
tell me about this. I want to know more about this. And they do this like a really extensive kind of like, oh girl, what's your deal? And it turns out that she's bi and she's like, well, yeah. And then I kind of made it to London and everyone was like, oh, you'd make more money as a sex worker if you're a woman who caters to men. So I was like, okay. And and there's like this whole thing. We don't really know what happens to her. Like she seems to kind of like disappear from court records after that. So she might've like escaped or she might've been released or something like that. But she's mostly treated as this kind of like, oh, like you know it's it's very much like it's not great it's very voyeuristic and that sort of a thing but um and they're like this is very sinful go on you know then it's very much treated Mm. as like um this this really interesting thing so we know certainly these people are out there and they don't all get caught by the cops right um and it is one of those things where then as now you know if you're really trying to change gender bright lights big city you go to the biggest city that you can find and just see if you can blend in you know it's probably gonna be less likely to happen in your hometown but if you right. can get away and go somewhere else then it is something that you might be able to do and then as now those people are usually especially if it's like a trans woman they usually do a lot of them end up doing sex work and that sort of thing because it's one of the only open trades for women in the medieval period so, so what's the sex work situation like uh, it's legal so it's, it's legal. yeah it's okay. not decriminalized it's legal which means that there's all kinds of trouble uh with it as well so in general, it's considered that sex work is absolutely necessary to keep things running. Um, and this is something that all the theologians agree on. St. Augustine thinks this. Thomas Aquinas thinks this. Everybody agrees. And this is also quite ironic because I just said that thing about how women are the horny ones. Yeah, I was going to yeah. raise that. Yeah. yeah. Like, but they're serving men, generally. Yeah, I but guess. they're serving yeah. men. And the idea here is that, well, if unmarried men can't get their sexual needs seen to because you really shouldn't be masturbating. Because, like, in mm. a lot of ways, masturbating is, like, worse than everything else because it's just a total waste. It makes no sense. It's completely illogical. They need to have some kind of sexual outlet because the worry is if their semen builds up too much, they'll become too hot and dry, which is what semen is, um, in their opinion. And then that will erupt into violence. So particularly in cities, you need to make sure that, like, men are adequately sexually serviced. And that's where sex work comes in. Um, so sex work is usually legal. And it, but it's got a lot of prescriptions about it as well. So the most common things for sex work is that, well, sex workers usually have to either work outside of a city's walls because all cities are, are walled for defensive purposes, or they need to be right at the edge of a city. Um, here in London, as I say, it's in Southwark, so it's across the river, which is traditionally where you keep all your actors and all of your sex workers because it's essentially the same thing as far as medieval people are concerned. And, yeah. you know, you know, you meet actors and you're like, hmm. But um, uh, the uh, so basically all the fun stuff's kept in Southwark, um, mm. and often as well. Like so, here in London, you had to also wear a specific clothing that marks you out as a sex worker. So here, you're you have to wear um, a, what's called a hood of ray, which we think is kind of like a black and white striped head garment. So the minute someone sees you, they know, oh, okay, well she's a sex worker. Now. Um, in a lot of the Holy Roman Empire and places like that, brothels would actually be municipally chartered. So you would kind of go to the mayor or whoever and you would have an actual charter that says, yes, we are the brothel. Um, and then so there there would be like multiple brothels in, in a lot of cities who were illegally allowed to be there. But of course, that means that if you're not working in that brothel, then you're an illegal sex worker and they will crack down on those women pretty hard from time to time. Um But the also interesting thing here is because since sex work is so accepted, it's not seen as like the big deal, a deal breaker as it is for us now. Like if you decide you want to leave sex work, um, the like and they call um, like they'll say sex workers are like repentant. That's what they always say. 
Um, and so, sure, you could become a nun. Like, there's a whole order of nuns, the Magdalens, who are invented just to take in um, ex-sex workers. Uh, but then eventually they become just a regular order of nuns. Um, but for most people, what happens if you go, okay, well, I'm over being a sex worker. You go to the priest, bless me, Father, I've sinned. And they say, okay, well, your penance is you have to get married. And if you get married and have a kid, they're like, done. Like, that's it. Clean slate. Like, nobody cares. It's not that mm. big a deal. And, like, mm. the fact that you were a sex worker isn't something that's, like, supposed to be some big cross and, oh, oh, it's terrible. And you're, like, this downtrodden woman. Having said that, if you die as a sex worker without repenting, you are considered to be outside of communion with the church. So, again, here in London, there's this whole uh, graveyard called Crossbones in Southwark where just, like, all of the unconsecrated dead um, women are buried. And... You know, I don't try to get too maudlin about it because I don't want to give, like, the church that much of its uh, due and that sort of thing. But, you know, one supposes that these people were probably religious to a certain extent. And it sucks that they are kind of, like, buried in unconsecrated ground as kind of, like, outcast dead, like, not with everybody else. And especially in London because the biggest uh, person making money off brothels in London was the Bishop of Winchester who had his summer palace in Southwark and had, like, owned the entire South Bank. So he's the one who's, like, renting out all the premises to uh, sex workers here like so much so that one of the slang terms for um, a sex worker in uh, medieval London is a Winchester goose so it's like so he can make as much money as he wants off of it but if you die then like you're the bad one and so it's very it's very nuanced essentially so it's it's legal um, it's acceptable but it's not like everyone's favorite thing you know, it's now, kind of is like, there is there contraception of some sort or abortion or are we talking about mostly sodomy? How did how did women protect themselves? So abortion is, is really common in the medieval period. And it's also, again, seen as less of a big deal than it is now. Um, but it's usually quite early on. So um, we do see a lot of abortion. We know that there is a lot of abortion. Um, and this is herbal um, or Sometimes surgical? it's herbal and sometimes it's surgical. So um, there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of, you know, medical guys that recommend penny oil, that sort of thing. Um, But there are also women, you know, a lot of times um, people who, you know, like midwives, that sort of thing. The the women who specialize in obstetrics, they can probably do an abortion as well. Um, And that is seen as less of a big deal. And it's usually pre, like first trimester, it's kind of like, well, that's fine. There's also kind of a high level of infanticide in the medieval period, which is a bit more grisly, obviously. So, you know, women who, like, simply can't take care of a child are like... Uh, and that is uh, treated with a lot more seriousness, obviously. Um, especially because the church are like, we're basically giving you ten Hail Marys at, like, for an abortion, so how did it get to this point? You know, so there's a lot of uh, frowning on that. Are there foundling hospitals, or are They're... they just leaving them by the river? Or how, yeah, you can, you can do that. You can, uh, you can leave them with, like, nunneries and uh, with monasteries. That happens a lot. There's a lot of ditching babies uh, with uh, nunneries because they, they always need new oblates. So, hey, you know, that might work. Um, and, but the thing is a lot of the time, again, for most people, most people are, um, peasants and for them, it's like, oh, you have a kid, like, great. That's more hands on the farm. So, you know, that it's less common with them. It's more of something that you see in cities and stuff like that. Um, Mm. they don't really have what we would call like any form of reliable birth control, you know, um, in any way, shape or form. They, they do a lot of, uh, pulling and praying. There's a lot of that. Which is also, you know, um, which can be pretty effective if done correctly, you know, to be fair. It's just that nobody does it correctly. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so there, there's a lot of that. Um, but it's it does seem to be like a little bit more abortion centric in terms of mm. birth control. And we do kind of like not we 
there are it is a lot of kind of discussing why it is that um, sex workers don't seem to have kids very often, and there is kind of like a a lot of going huh about that, and it's like well they're probably either having abortions or you know like maybe they maybe they are doing a lot of sodomy instead who knows mm. you know because that might just be what people have asked for when they come right. in, uh, right. but we're we're not exactly sure on that one because um. You know, I've seen some people kind of like trying to prognosticate and say, oh, well, they all had STIs, which made them barren. And I'm like, eh, like we don't have super great records about um, STIs in the medieval period um, until syphilis comes along right at the end. And then everyone freaks out about syphilis because, uh, you know, it's bad, famously. But um, so we don't have great records of it. Um, We do know that they're kind of around the shop, but there is a lot less um, kind of agonizing about STIs than we have now. So people were a lot more like, uh, circumspect about SCIs as right. well. There's just like, eh, well, they seem to happen. So, uh, but I don't really like doing the kind of retrospective diagnosis thing of kind of like looking at sure. people's symptoms and saying, oh, well, that's chlamydia or something. You know, it's, it's hard to, right. who can say? Like, I don't even right. know if it necessarily existed then. So I don't really want to, because like, I mean, as I say, when syphilis shows up, we definitely know it's syphilis and that's like fine. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. you know, I try to be careful with that. I remember reading something. And I think it was medieval France in the south of France that some guy had sex with a farm animal and they ended mm. up like putting the animal on trial for <sighs> seducing him. <laughs> that's a, like that's that sounds like something that might happen. I mean, so a big common thing is if you get done for so bestiality is the worst. Like that's oh, that's okay. the worst thing for medieval people. It's like in the hierarchy that and uh, Thomas Aquinas has like a, a legitimate hierarchy he's made, and like right down the bottom is bestiality. That's the worst thing you can do. Isn't that weird? I, like you can you can slaughter it, need it, but you can't fuck it. Like, yeah. How does that make sense? And then if you do, if, it, if someone finds out you fucked a goat or whatever, they will slaughter the goat too. Like that's like they will also kill the animal a lot of the time. Right. So if you what, get the so word doesn't get out and how good it was. I know. That's, and it's like and you're kind. <laughs> of like this seems really unfair on the animal <laughs> like you know what if yeah. they so like yeah. now they have to die and like but yeah like when dudes get uh, found to be having sex with animals they'll kill every animal that it turns out he fucked and I'm like I'm not sure that's nice for them but they got a very specific thing about yeah. uh, about uh, bestiality they just no uh, but yeah I, it would not surprise me at all to find that that was true they, they probably love that they do. They love a good show trial, don't they? Yeah, that's fine. yeah. There was this whole thing. I, I I can't remember much other than southern France. I think it might have been a donkey, and there was this whole thing about how the donkey was looking too sexy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like those eye, those eyelashes. So you've met you've mentioned a couple of times like how um, something being not logical. Mm. Uh, was grounds for it being criminal or or mm. sinful or whatever? Mm. Should we take from that that rationality was held in very high regard in this period? Oh yes. So and and this is one of these interesting things, right? Because um, the way that one of the things that we demonize medieval people for is we we always say that oh well they they lost all of the knowledge of the ancient world and I mean so yeah they didn't necessarily have every single Plato text like ready to go but they absolutely reified you know a classical thinkers like for them that was as good as it got and they learned to read and write because they're doing everything in Latin and they do it on you know 
Cicero. They do it, you know, on all these things. And they are really obsessed with philosophy. Like for them, um, you know, I mentioned Peter, Peter Abelard earlier. I've mentioned Thomas Aquinas. So these are like, you know, some of your big heavy hitting philosophers of the medieval period. And they are very close to in terms of fame and interest. Um, so like I would say like astrophysicists and stuff are now, you know, the way that we mm. kind of like reify, you know, um, I don't know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, people like that, where we're like, oh, that's great. Like what a smart guy. That's how medieval people thought about philosophers. And they're really, really interested in logic and being able to prove things. And there's a big thing where eventually Abelard, who had sex with Eloise, um, he uh, gets uh, condemned for heresy because um, basically because nobody likes him. He's a bit of a jerk. And uh, he's a really, really great argumentative philosopher. And so they won't at his trial allow him to speak or argue mm. in his favor because they're like, they're basically just trying to teach him a lesson. And they're like, you're not allowed to argue this because they know he can outlogic everyone. Like they know that like he will argue his piece and he will win. And they're just basically trying to get him to shut up and be more polite to everyone else. Um, but everyone is really interested in logic. They're really interested in rhetoric. You know, um, medieval universities, when they're set up in the 11th century, they are uh, based around what's called the trivium and the quadrivium of the liberal arts. So the trivium is logic, grammar, and rhetoric. Um, and grammar is, um, is learning Latin. Um, uh, logic is, you know, logic. And rhetoric is being able to argue those things. And those are the first three things that you do in order to get a bachelor's degree, is master those things. And all of it is completely based off of, like, Platonism, Aristotelianism, um, and then mixed in with that, you know, what, who we call the church fathers. So, you know, um, St. Augustine, people like that, St. Right. Jerome. And so they're mixed in as well. And they're very much of the same tradition where it's, um, you know, if you ever sit down and read some Aquinas, which I pray you never have to, uh, but he was, the man was a genius. He was just incredibly intelligent. And, and he does everything as a disputation. So he'll say, well, here's a question. Here's one way of answering it. Here's another way of answering it. And he'll work through every line of logic until he comes up with an answer. And it's absolutely incredible stuff. Um, mm. But they very, very much consider rationality to be the highest point of all things. Um, and it's only kind of like our way of looking at now we say that, well, for something to be rational, it has to be completely divorced from conceptions of spirituality or religiousness. And that's just not true for medieval people. Um, and so you do have really sophisticated philosophical frameworks that it's very, very difficult um, sometimes now to even... Uh, you, you can't just like pick up Aquinas and be like, oh, yes, this all makes sense. You kind of have to get uh, you know used to the ways that he argues. But um, yeah, for them, logic, logic is everything that one is aspiring to be. One is still, mm. to a certain extent, aspiring to be like the great classical man and to be this logical, upright citizen. It's just that now there's also this uh, attendant thing about serving God on top of that. So mm. yeah, for logic is a really reified, um, right. I would say it, it's almost like a, an ideal for them. All right, and what does all this have to do with George Michael? Everything. <laughs> George Michael, my patron saint. Um, so, you know, this is a shared passion we have. I've always yes. said that George Michael is my second favorite gay man after Dan Savage. Oh, my two faves. I, I, I mean, and I know Dan personally, so I got to give him, you know, the first the first place award there, but. Uh, George Michael for me is like I mean I'm I'm straight I have lots of gay friends and and mm. you know I'm comfortable around gay men very comfortable uh and to me George Michael is like I, I don't there there's some freedom and connection to heart and spirit mm. and 
and like um, just a purity of expression that I don't find in straight men, <sighs> even in myself. Yeah. And, but I recognize it, you know, I, I feel it. Yeah, I mean, I've so my kind of uh, d- d- my joke that is like fast becoming not a joke about George Michael is I'm like, well, if religion is um, a social concept that we're allowed to make it up, I'm like, well, I'm making my own religion and it's about George Michael. So guess what? Like that's that's what it is. Um, and so what is it? What, so, what touches you? So what what really touches me is like in the first place, you know, the man was such an artist. And I think it's really interesting because it's something that people haven't really um, grappled with yet. Like I will occasionally yell at someone on I think I yelled at someone on Twitter the other day because they were saying that like Morrissey was a better artist than George Michael and I was like get out of town like leave immediately like that that's just not true his music's incredible it's yeah. it's nuanced it's beautiful he's just such an incredible Isn't it, I mean he's carrying the weight of wham right I mean <laughs> yeah I think that's a big part of it yeah he matured so much and his mm. album older is just older a, uh, a mean, masterpiece as far I think older is probably the album that I listen to most often and yeah. it's because it's sort of like free therapy you can just put on older and you think you've learned something you know well he um, matured so uh, clearly and openly I mean that, and that album Jesus Jesus to a child is you know yeah. as far as I'm concerned one of the best songs ever written it's just absolutely incredible but um, Even Fast Love. Oh, Fast Every, Love. Everyone thinks Fast Love is like a, a sexy dance song, which it is. But you listen to the lyrics, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's about it's about the, the, trying to cover up the sadness of having lost his husband, right? Yeah, it, it basically it's because Anselmo died and he's just like trying to fuck the pain away. And in, in he's yeah. very clear about that. And I think, yeah. that I, and this, this is one of the things that is incredible about George Michael as an artist, is that he's capable of these, um, you know, absolutely transcendent songs like uh, Jesus to a St- uh, Child or... Um, Oh God, so many. I can't even begin. But he also is one of the only artists that is able to actually write a sex song that's like sexy. Like it doesn't come across as corny because in things like Fast Love, it's like, well, there's this real human longing below that. Or um, one of my personal favorite George Michael sex jams, um, Freak 08. Um, it's, it's really quite dirty. It's off of, um, uh, it is off of uh, Patience which I'm a huge fan of Patience, and I'm always telling people, go back and listen to Patience. It's very, very good. But Freak on that is, like, really, like, much more upfront, And he's, like, actually swearing in it and stuff, which you don't get a lot of swearing from George uh, in music. But it's so clear that he gets it. Like, he can write a real song about sex that is, like, quite raw because he's not joking. Like, this is, this is stuff that he knows. And he can really write about it in this, like, really, it's not cringy. It's not funny. Right. Like, it's actually sexy. And it's because there are all these layers that he's able to tap into um and i mean the man was just an incredible writer and you know it doesn't hurt that he had uh, the voice of an angel in the face of an angel you know like i mean i will often uh, i really enjoy singing along with him and you know so for example on outside very important sex jam he's you know it's just like the when he starts off with the i'm getting tired of the sofa like i can't hit those notes and then at the end he's like up in you know the alto range and it's like how are you doing this george it's just an incredible voice but and i mean i think outside in a lot of ways encapsulates one of the things i really love about george michael which is um just how he just does not give a fuck what you think and it's just like him just being like yeah I i like to shag in toilets what are you yeah. going to do about it? And it's like, 
Yeah. I mean, I think I really started loving him when I'd first moved to London about a year after I moved to London. Um, he had driven his car into a snappy snaps, like a photo developing place. And there was like an interview with him in the guardian or something. And they were like, Oh George, aren't you? And they were asking him all these things about his life. And they were like, well, how much, because he was stoned at the time. Well, how much weed do you smoke a day? And he's like, I don't know, like seven joints. Where where do I have to be? And they like want him right. to apologize, and he's like, no. And they're like, why are you always having sex in the toilets on Hampstead Heath? And he's like, I like it out though. Those are my friends. And I remember yeah. being like, this guy, this these are my people. <laughs> you know, like yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like he's not he's not going to apologize for what he wants, and he's not going to tell you the story that makes you feel safe. He's just talking about his actual life. And then he died, and it turns out that he's an absolute saint who was just giving money away left, right, and center. He's like, you know, the only person who dies and you find out that even he was wonderful and he was so much more wonderful than you ever imagined because he was just doing charity work the entire time. It's just, ugh. Oh, God, yeah. I love George Michael. Uh. Yeah, there, it's it's a, it's a an ironic thing. It's, it you know, I, I don't know how to sum this up, but there's this feeling I, of admiration that I have for him mm-hmm. and, and other, some, a lot of other gay men because they've, they've, gone through this process of Mm self-actualization that is, you know, sort of seen as the essence of masculinity, Mm. right? Like Mm. in our, you know, you were talking about it earlier, your men are strong and they're Mm. self-contained and controlled and they they stand up for the truth and they they face uh, public approbation, you know, but it doesn't matter because I am what I am, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who has done that more than a public, openly gay figure i mean so true yeah it's it's incredible the the shit that they've had to to deal with to get to that point um and talking about like george michael not giving a shit one of his songs i love star people oh star people i mean he pisses on the whole notion of fame Mm. he pisses on other famous people and he he literally says like i I don't count myself among you yeah (laughs) love that I may be living in a dream, right? He's like, I may be wrong, but I don't think I'm like this. I don't think I'm so full of bullshit like, like I mean, you yeah, people are. The how Counting much of, the money till your skin turns green or something. How much or, is enough? The like that. Yeah. How mu- I was like, yeah. oh, it's so good. Like that, you know, the. And, and in the background, your mama didn't. Did, your mama gave, gave you up, boy. boy. Your daddy, daddy didn't, didn't love you enough. enough. Girl, oh, so <laughs> good. Like, and, 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 and it's one of those like a classic George Michael songs where it's like you're kind of bopping along and it's like, yeah. it, and and then you're like, wait a minute, this is like yeah. actually quite Listen deep. to the words. Yeah, which is even, yeah. you know, and it, don't get me wrong, like we can all make fun of Wham, but if you sit down and listen to the lyrics of Wham rap, it's actually kind of like a socialist anthem for the yeah. masses. And you're like, and, but no one notices because you're just busy being like, woo, rap, yeah. you know, but it's all yeah. about how like, you know, you shouldn't necessarily have to find dignity in work and your job isn't the thing that defines you. And like the state should support us in order to have like a better life. And it's like, yeah, talk about it, George. Fine, right. great. You know, yeah. like it just, oh God. I mean, I my hobbies are like, I, so I got given for Christmas a set of bongos because I'm trying to learn the bongo solo in I Want Your Sex. Because mm. it's, All which right. is really, and then now that I have a set of bongos, I realize how much bongo is in all George Michael's work. So I've really huh. got my work cut out for me, but I'm starting with I Want Your Sex and then I'm going to move on from there. But that's a good place to start. <laughs> it is. I mean, come on. Ah. <laughs> How do you feel about Peter Gabriel? I like Peter Gabriel. I mean, I don't have the slavish devotion that I have to George Michael, but, you know, like, there's only so much room in my life for a man on that level, you know? <laughs> yeah, Just like I we can't. Yeah. 
I understand. But next time, if you want to, like, a, a song that pairs really well with Star People is a Peter Gabriel song okay. called Big Time. I know the one. Yes. Do you know that one? Yes. It's, it's the same thing. That's it's a so famous true. person oh. saying, This is all bullshit. It's all ego. It, it's not happiness. You know. It, oh, I love that. I love that. Where yeah. it's like, I, the other one that I always talk about with George Michael is I always say that praying for time is George Michael's Imagine, except that I think that praying for time is better than Imagine. But mm. you know, which is controversial. But praying for time, absolutely amazing song, really wonderful. I'll check that out. I don't know that one. Yeah, that's the opening track on "Listen Without Prejudice," I think. Uh, so, uh, mm. okay, yeah, I've probably heard it. I just don't know the name. Mm. All right. Well, listen, I, I'm going <laughs> to let you get back to your life. I know it's uh, it's cocktail hour. It there, is. Or well, it is. Well yeah. past it. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, this has been fantastic. It's you're been such a pleasure. You're a font of knowledge uh, about about something I know very little about. But like I said at the beginning, there are all these parallels where I feel like both of us are trying to stand up for a, a period of history or prehistory in my case mm. that gets misused so much to mm-hmm. justify so much bullshit. Um, so I, and I know how hard it is. I've you know, I've spent 20 years arguing with people about, uh, you know, a 35-year-old has never been old. Yeah, never. Never been never. old. That's not real. I mean, a 35-year-old chimpanzee's not old. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. It makes no sense. Uh, but, you know, they it's amazing the power of, of, of uh, uh, ignorance mm-hmm. when that ignorance serves the dominant social paradigm. Uh, absolutely. You know? I mean, I think I, I do like to see our work as aligned in that, uh, you know, yours informs mine. So, you know, which has always been true. So just a, a, a brief fangirl. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll allow myself that one. You well, know. thank you. Thank you. Uh, where can people learn more about you? I, uh, I mentioned Twitter. You are I'm, Eleanor. Um, I'm, uh, so my, my at there is Going Medieval. So capital going G, medieval. capital M. Right. And that's the, the brand generally. So my blog is going hyphen medieval.com because some jerk has regular going medieval and is not using it um mm. and also you know for those who would like to help me out and support my work i have a patreon so it's a patreon forward slash going medieval um and there i you know have like a monthly podcast and multiple things so you can get like even more medieval history content from me but uh there's a lot of it for free online anyway i gotta say <laughs> so and like don't, don't you like go like have beers with other scholars yeah. and record that yeah. I, I like that as an idea that's cool yeah so it's like a lot of the time it'll just be like me it, unfortunately that's been really curtailed by uh the, yeah. the 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 whole pandemic thing but there is a lot of kind of like drinking beers and uh just having conversations with other medieval historians or other historians generally so like that's right. kind of like the bonus contact which which is really fun because it just gives people um, a chance to really chat about what it is that they love in an informal context, which, you know, that's always when it's really time to see people shine, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. All right. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Going medieval, check her out. She's cool. And if you want to support independent scholarship, uh, Independent scholarship, independent journalism, independent thought. Uh, its I think we're coming into a, a golden age for those things. As the structures break down, freedom opens up. So if you want to support her work, definitely uh, go to her um, to Patreon and throw a few bucks in the kitty. Thank you. I will leave you. By the way, I, I don't know if you noticed this. 
but this has been another commercial-free episode. Brought to you by you and people like you. Uh, thanks for your support, everybody who supports on uh, however you support. Uh, through my webpage is the best way to do it. Um, but there's also Patreon. There's, uh, you know, buying T-shirts from mom. There's PayPal. There's writing reviews on iTunes and, and on your podcast app so that when people are curious, they'll see that uh, at least somebody likes it. So however you support this podcast, I am very appreciative, very grateful, and I've got a lot more to talk to you about, but I, I think I overdid it this time. So I'm going to save stuff for next time.